What are the principles of the Democratic Party? Are the principles of the Democratic Party and race, that uh, different races should be favored over others, that we should have reparations, that we should, you know, America's a white supremacist society, that America shot through with racism, it was born in slavery, marinated in racism, and is a united society of this day. Is that a principle of the Democratic Party, or is that a belief of a certain sector of the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left? that is now sort of difficult to argue against within the Democratic Party, but doesn't even reflect where most voters are coming from. It doesn't even reflect where a lot of non-white voters are coming from. So what is the point of this? If it's alienating to voters and it's not, you know, what most voters believe, including non-white voters, when we have a situation where white college graduates are more liberal on racial issues and are more aggressive on their views of how racist American society is than like non-white voters. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? So what's the point of that? It doesn't really help. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. My guest today is Rui Tissera. Rui is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a longtime fellow in the past at CAP, and the author 20 years ago of a really influential book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, as well as more recently, a book with a slightly different thesis, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? We had a long conversation about how it is but the Democratic Party and some other left-wing parties around the world have lost the working class. Whether the Democratic Party is in the process of irretrievably losing not just the white working class, uh, but also the non-white working class, doing long-standing damage to its standing among Latinos, Asian Americans, perhaps even African Americans. And we talked, of course, about the 2024 election, about whether Donald Trump might be re-elected and what Joe Biden could do at this late stage to try and make that less likely. Rutik Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Asha. It is the beginning of January 2024. Who do you think is going to win the presidential elections in the United States? Oh, come on. You're, you're going to start out by asking me that. It's always uh, questionable to make predictions, especially about the future. I really think it's a toss-up at this point. And I guess if it you held the election today, Trump might nose it out, but it's not going to be held today. There's a lot of things that can happen between now and November. Trump has manifest in many vulnerabilities. So I see it as kind of a seesaw election with no clear advantage for either side at this point. But I think either Biden or Trump, and it will be Biden and Trump, will nose about equal chance of nosing it out. But I don't see a big victory on either side. And I think at this point, one would be foolish to say with any certainty which one it's going to be. So in a way, that sounds like a boring answer, which is to say there's a big election coming up and it looks like the Democrat candidate and the Republican candidate both have a chance of winning it. That has often been the case in American history. Of course, what is not boring about the answer and what is somewhat scary about our political situation is that Donald Trump is not exactly an ordinary political candidate. He is somebody who had not a very distinguished record in his first term in office, who refused to concede the election when he lost 
who, however exactly you want to phrase this, inspired, helped to motivate, helped to celebrate a crowd of people who assaulted the United States Capitol in 2021. He is currently facing a variety of charges in a variety of jurisdictions around the United States. So how is it that somebody, and by the way, he's deeply unpopular. When you just look at top-level approval ratings, he is an extremely unpopular politician. Well, actually, the funny thing about this, Yasha, is if you look at his approval ratings, they're actually higher than than Biden's. I mean, if you ask people, do you approve of how Donald Trump conducted his presidency? You get a higher approval rating for that than you do about Biden's current conduct of his presidency. And his favorable rating is tends to be slightly higher than Biden's at this point, but they're both incredibly unpopular. But that's where we get the question, right? Which is to say, why is it that Democrats aren't able to open a decisive lead on Donald Trump? Why is it that even for Donald Trump, is unpopular and has all these liabilities, Democrats are not able to make you more confident in your predictions as to what will happen in November. Well, that's really what uh, my new book with John Judas, Where Have All the Democrats Gone, is, is really about. It's trying to understand how did we get to this point where we have this stalemate between the parties and where the Democrats are faced with an opponent with so many vulnerabilities, who is so unpopular in many ways, and a party whose image isn't that much better. Why is it that they basically are fighting around the 50-yard line of this particular game? Why can't they open up a decisive advantage against Trump and his party? And that's a lot what our book's trying to explain, what's happened to the Democratic Party over the course of the 21st century that's made it so unpopular with so many working-class voters that it can't really forge that majority, even against someone like Trump and why Trump himself is actually gaining votes among working class voters, including, scarily enough, non-white working class voters. So we're trying to understand that in the book about that long arc of change in the Democratic Party that's made it unpalatable to so many, so many voters in, in this country who should, you would think, would be sympathetic to the Democrats. So what is the answer? Why is a party that has historically been the party of a working class and that has been in power for a lot of the 20th century come to be so unpopular among the working class in particular? Well, that gets back again to, you know, that's really a lot what the book's about. We have two sections in the book. The first is called The Great Divide, where we look at the divisions that have opened up in American politics in the late 20th century between the working class and college-educated voters, between different geographical areas of the country, the big dynamic metros, the left-behind areas, rural America, small-town America. This really does start to bite in the late 20th century, and that has obviously not just a cultural component, but an economic component as well, that the Democrats really take their leave of New Deal economics. We could argue about why that, that happened, but it clearly did. And they embraced a sort of soft neoliberalism around issues like trade and regulation, and just generally in terms of their their attitude toward public spending and sort of the priority you put on working class economic benefits, how concerned they were with the left behind areas of the country. And importantly, it's over this period when the Democrats sort of move in this neoliberal economics direction that the union movement really declines. And the union movement was a, was a very important working class anchor for the Democrats, both electorally and culturally. And as their influence declines, we see the Democrats 
start moving in a direction that's more consistent with their burgeoning college-educated base. And this really bursts into full flower in the 21st century. I want to double click on that for a moment, if I may, and I'd love to hear about the role of unions. But the only kind of skepticism I have towards that story is that when you look at working class voters today, some of them, of course, do want more public services and more public spending and perhaps higher taxes to finance those things. But most of them do not, right? So there's this weird thing in which working class voters have flocked to the Republican Party, even for the Republican Party, is less into public spending and public services and all of those kinds of things. And so I guess I, I want to understand more carefully the story of how it is that we embrace of more moderate economic policies, or if you will, quote, unquote, neoliberal economic policies by Democrats in the 1990s, let's say, has driven working class voters to support a political party that is at least equally guilty, if not realistically more guilty, of those sins that you're charging the Democrats with. It's not like the Democrats were the only neoliberal party, of course. I mean, I think both parties in the late 20th century were different versions of somewhat the same thing. But, you know, Democrats had historically had this anchor to working class voters where they were sort of the, the tribune of these voters, the party of the common man and woman. And that really gets lost in the late 20th century with the way that deindustrialization was affecting different areas of the country. You had the Democrats' embrace of NAFTA, and then China's accession to the WTO and the big China shock in the early 2000s. These are things that voters reacted very negatively to who were in those communities and felt Democrats weren't on their side and basically didn't care about them. That didn't mean that they therefore understood what the Republicans' economic policies were and all this stuff, but they definitely felt the Democrats were no longer their parties. So this is what happens when a party becomes identified with policies and outcomes that are different than what the voters who historically supported them uh, expected. And they sort of move in the direction of the Republicans. The story that you're telling is mostly about the economy. I just wonder what role culture plays in that story. Oh, culture always plays a role. I think there's always an interaction effect between culture and economics. So, for example, if you look at the initial tranche of white working class movement away from the Democrats, in the late 20th century, it really is driven by race and the movements of the 60s. But that really gets turbocharged by the economic events of the 70s and 80s. And as I say, the way Democrats change their economic approach. So the two things become melded together. Interestingly enough, you look at the Gallup data on which party can keep the country prosperous in the next several years, up to about the late 70s, Democrats have a double digit, regular double digit advantage on this over the Republicans. But after 1980, roughly, that disappears. And the Democrats sometimes are behind, sometimes a little ahead, but the advantage, such as it was, completely disappears. And if you look at the average advantage of the Democrats on this, it, it, it basically entirely disappears. It even comes negative over some periods. Sorry to zoom in on the details here, but it, 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 surely in the 1980s, that was a moment where there was some significant policy distance between Democrats and Republicans, which is to say that, that as I read it, in the 1980s, you had Ronald Reagan changing the discourse in the economy in a much more neoliberal direction. And Democrats at that point were sort of trailing, where I think continuing to speak about the economy in an older language that Reagan was attacking. And then you could argue it was, you know, once Bill Clinton was elected in 1992 and the sort of third-way Democrats became dominant, that Democrats and Republicans came to look more similarly. But if the moment in which people stopped trusting Democrats 
with being able to provide economic growth was around 1980, it's not clear to me that neoliberalism is the answer. And of course, the same you might say about the United Kingdom, where you can say that Tony Blair and his government was quote-unquote neoliberal. Again, I'm not sure how helpful that is as a description, but there's a plausible case to be made. But actually, a lot of working-class voters seem to have shifted towards the conservatives in the 1980s, in part because they were attracted to Margaret Thatcher's much more lower-middle-class entrepreneurial vision of how they were going to go ahead. So I guess I'm just trying to understand sort of what exactly is it that made people change their minds in those communities in the early 1980s? Because it doesn't seem to me to be the embrace of a Washington consensus that the center-left came to agree upon 10 or 15 years later. Well, it's more facts on the ground. I, I don't think it's really typically about with most voters which philosophy any party is is embracing and that they understand in any detail. But you can understand the rise of Reagan and the disaffection of these working class voters from the Democrats without twinning the changes that they were taking place in their communities and in the political economy of the United States with the stagflation of the 70s and sort of the exhaustion of the Keynesian model that implicit was implicit in Democrats' economic policies. People you know, basically decided they weren't getting much out of it. They were getting taxed. You know, there was high inflation. There was high unemployment. The Democrats don't seem to know what the hell they're doing. So let's try something different. Maybe government is the problem. And of course, that has a lot of cultural resonance around issues around welfare and other things like that. Basically, government's spending money, but it's spending money not on me, but on other people. And it's not even very effective. It's not really benefiting me. It's not really benefiting my community. So they embrace someone like Reagan. And then you have the whole morning in America thing. We can argue about just how great the Reagan economy was. But as it recovered from that deep recession in the early 80s, people felt pretty good about it. And that really enabled the Republicans to keep a lot of those working class voters over time. A lot. One way to think about it, Yasha, they just lost faith in the Democratic Party and their model of governing, their ability to manage the economy and deliver prosperity. That's huge. I mean, you can maybe argue they shouldn't have done it. Don't they realize how bad they're all, the alternative they're embracing is? But that's not the way voters work. So that, I think, was a really helpful, interesting dissection, because I think that a lot follows from which exact story we tell. Because a lot of the time, the story that seems to be told is something like the following. It's Democrats had this great thing going. They had this fusion with the working class that voted for them reliably in large numbers. And then they fell into this trap of embracing these neoliberal policies in the 1990s. And that really severed their link to the working class. And if you're telling that story, then there seems to be a pretty straightforward upshot, which is where you just have to go back to the paradise that was there before you had the fall of embracing neoliberalism. You go back to arguing for the welfare state and for more public spending and so on, and that should in theory be able to reestablish your link with the working class. But the story as we've now crystallized it in the last five or 10 minutes is I think a little bit more complicated, right? It's that there was a very successful post-war economy in the 50s and 60s in the United States and Britain and many parts of Europe. Democrats were associated with having build that post-war economy and sustaining it. And so people thought that they were guarantors of economic prosperity and growth. But in the 1970s, the model started to run into very real trouble, into stagflation here, into the winter of discontent in the United Kingdom, into fears about the sustainability of a welfare state in continental Europe. And it was actually in the early 1980s that the working class started to sever its link from Democrats and the Labour Party and so on, when a significant segment of the working class embraced the very different economic policies 
of Reagan and Thatcher. And if that's the story, then how to go back to an economy that is more based around the welfare state in a substantive way and how to convince voters to regain their trust in that kind of economy is a much more complicated, much more difficult question and challenge. Yeah, it's definitely not the case that, you know, working class voters woke up one day and realized this strange thing was happening with the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party, for no apparent reason, decided it was going to embrace neoliberalism. In fact, what happened is the Democrats were reacting to, in a sense, the failure of their own model of, of economic policy and governance, which obtained in the 70s, where a lot of communities were feeling left behind, battered by inflation, high unemployment. There was a sense in which the model had exhausted itself. And as Reagan immortally put it, government was more the problem than the solution. So Democrats had to respond to that, figure out a, a way to deal with it. And it certainly wasn't as simple as just reinstituting or talking louder about their model because they realized it wasn't popular and it, probably, it just hadn't worked that well. So in the 90s, I think they do really come to embrace this sort of aversion of neoliberalism that's much softer and more redistributive. And, you know, you can characterize that as compensate the losers. There's a very interesting paper by Suresh Naidu et al., a bunch of economists who looked at the changes in democratic support in the late 20th century and how it moved toward this compensate the losers model, which actually working class people aren't that interested in. I mean, this is a mistake I think a lot of educated, relatively affluent voters make is they think what voters really want is they just want the welfare state. They just want people to give them a lot of stock. What they really liked about the welfare state after you know, World War II wasn't just there were decent social programs, but it was a dynamic economy. It was growing pretty fast. It provided opportunity for people. They felt it was relatively easy to get ahead. They loved that. And when growth falters, the model that produces that growth falters, they're going to look around for something else. And so Democrats thought they needed not just more welfare programs, they needed actually a growth program that would be very effective in the economy and then provide the benefits that they could then redistribute to people. And, you know, who knows where that would go eventually, maybe get people back on the side of, of, of government spending in a more Keynesian model, who knows, but that was their adjustment to it. And the problem with that is even though it worked pretty well in the nineties, particularly in the five years between 1995 and 2000, if you look at the data, it's very clear. This was one of the best times for wages and incomes for working class people in the last 10 or 15 years before that, the whole thing seemed to, again, slow down and then ultimately crash in the 2000s. You had the China shock from China's accession to the WTO that really hits in the early 2000s, devastates a bunch of communities. There's a lot of good analysis that's been done that shows heavy Republican movement and historically Democratic areas in the Midwest, for example, as a result of the effect on these communities from uh, the China shock. So the Democrats' embrace of neoliberalism wasn't completely frivolous. It was an attempt to come to terms with the changes that had taken place in the country. The problem is, in the end, it didn't work that well either as policy, and it didn't really repair their connections to the working class. And then, you know, you go into the 2000s, and the Democratic Party not only, at least up until the time of Biden, doesn't really change its economic model too much, but it actually moves in a direction culturally that's even more out of sync with working class voters. And that's kind of where we are today, where Democrats do and say things on a variety of socio-cultural issues that 20 years before everybody would have thought was completely insane, but uh, they do it nonetheless. And they seem oblivious to the fact that 
people aren't going to listen to your elaborate policy plans, even if they're not, quote, neoliberal, unquote, or whatever they are, if they feel that you are culturally alien to them. You look down on them. Your priorities are different than they are. Uh, your values are really different than they are. And that's that becomes a huge barrier for the Democrats. And back to your original question, why can't the Democrats beat the pants off of the Republicans, even though they're so screwy? A lot of it is because Democrats' image among wide sectors of the electorate and big parts of the country is so toxic that they won't even listen, really, to what Democrats have to tell them about how they're going to make their lives better. And that doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon at this point. So I think there's a lot of very interesting and convincing parts of this account, starting with the fact that always was my objection, politically speaking, to universal basic income, but also I think to a certain kind of way of talking about the welfare state, which is that to, you know, a college educated person who's in the world of public policy, who is doing pretty well in life, the class distinction at the lower end of the scale can be quite invisible. It's like, oh, you know, all of these people who didn't go to college and so on, they're all struggling and what they need is some kind of assistance. And as long as they live in a decent place and have decent food on the table, they're going to be happy. But of course, to people in that world, there is a giant difference between, you know, John, who is a plumber, who works hard, who makes decent money, even if perhaps he sometimes struggles to pay his medical bills or has other kind of challenges. And Jack, who sits at home and doesn't do anything. And if you're telling John, my vision for the future is that you and Jack are both going to be living off of the same welfare program or the same universal basic income, right? And saying, no, no, hang on a second. My identity in life is that I'm not Jack. You want to treat me like Jack. That is not what I want, right? More broadly, you know, I wonder why it is that these most centrist Democrats of the 1990s, of the neoliberal Democrats of the 1990s, were actually electorally quite successful. I mean, Bill Clinton was very successful. Tony Blair was exceptionally successful. Gerd Schroeder for a while in Germany was quite successful managing to bring the center-left into power after, you know, 16 years of conservative rule. And I wonder whether there is sort of three things there. One you've mentioned, which is that the economy was working relatively well at the time and was getting better, in particular for poor people, in the 1990s and 2000s in, in Britain and the United States. But then that stopped being the case, right? Certainly with 2008 and the Great Recession, perhaps a little bit before that with the dot-com bust and so on, you, you started to have a much more challenging economic environment, and so people became rightly more disaffected. So that's one part of it. You had the shock of China entering the WTO and the deindustrialization, all of that sort of pickup speed in the 2000s. The second piece, I think, is that there was something about that moment in the 1990s which provided a strategic political opening which really was only available at that particular historical juncture. And that is to say that at that time, there was still a working class that through unions, but also just through ancestral traditions, had this very deep connection to left-wing parties, right? And you had... Uh, states in the South of the United States continuing to vote for Democrats, even though uh, the racial politics should have told them not to in all kinds of ways. Rural areas, Great Plains states. I mean, people don't realize that it wasn't that long ago Democrats actually were pretty competitive, a lot of rural areas and rural states. But that has to do with their ancestral and essential connections. I was struck talking to Douglas Alexander, who's been on this podcast in the past, a Scottish Labour politician, saying that when he used to campaign in his constituency, which is a mining district, it just, even if people were skeptical of a Labour Party and so on, we end up said, you know, my 
Graham voted for Labour and my dad voted for Labour and they would turn the graves if I didn't. There was this sense of political loyalty. And at the most recent political campaign, he said, it felt like we were offering people a trip to the mining museum, but they wanted to go to Euro Disney, right? So that link to that tradition has just eroded over time as perhaps it inevitably was going to, right? So that I think is the second reason. And the third reason perhaps is that culturally these parties have changed, right? When you look at Bill Clinton or Tony Blair or Gerhard Schröder for that matter, they are modern people who promised a progressive uh, feel, promised to represent a country that is young and changing and diverse in a way that their predecessors didn't. But they were also very culturally moderate, right? They broke in many important ways with orthodoxies that the left had held previously, right? When the Clintons talked about abortion, it was famously to say that it should be safe, legal, and rare. Tony Blair promised to be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. So he talked about the causes of crime and wanting to combat them, but he said, we're also going to be tough on crime. That seems to have gotten lost, where nowadays even sort of center-left figures are much more culturally out of tune with the working class than they were a number of decades ago. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very true. I mean, I mean, it goes across all these sort of sociocultural issues that Democrats and well, left parties in general, their views on these issues seem to be defined more by the views of their college-educated liberal constituents than they do by anything connected to the working class. And there's a sort of lack of interest even on making your views palatable to members of the working class. I mean, one thing we talk about in our book it's about the shadow party, this penumbra of activist groups, nonprofits, academia, big sections of the media. You know, it's not exactly a vast conspiracy, but it certainly is a vast collection of groups and, and intellectuals and so on who really heavily influence the Democratic Party on a lot of these cultural issues and make it very toxic for Democratic politicians to to be culturally moderate in the way someone like Bill Clinton was. It's just it's just not on. They're, it's not part of the culture of the party. It's not supported by the infrastructure of the party. They're worried if politicians are worried if they say anything that's different about this stuff, about trans stuff, about race, whatever. They'll get pilloried on social media and maybe they'll even get primary. I mean, people, they worry about this all the time. So it's a remarkable change from the kind of attitudes of the New Democrats, of the third wave types in the 90s, whatever one might say about their economic policies. And I do think they kind of ran out of gas. Culturally, they had some pretty good ideas, you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, abortion, safe, legal and rare and so on. That's very appealing to people. And it's still appealing to people today. I mean, that's really the sweet spot of public opinion in this country to this day on a lot of these issues. But neither party is willing to embrace that 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 center position. And the Democrats in particular have have moved so far away from it. Part of it, you know, as we say, decline of labor movement, other changes, the, the sort of lack of ancestral connection that weakens in a lot of areas of the country that connected Democrats to more normie voters and more working class voters, more rural voters. That all goes away. This is like, I think this is sort of related. This is a great story that I read the other day. This is like in the South of the United States back in the day when the Democrats did pretty well in, in the South. You know, they're, they're in a school in Tennessee or something. Teacher says, okay. Where did where did electricity come from in this in this area? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Who built our school? Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes the reply among the kids. And okay, who created the earth? 
And some kid pipes up and says, God. And another kid yells, get that Republican out of here. So, so, I mean, you know, it's unimaginable, anything like that today. There's sort of this gratitude, this connection, this deep reverence almost for the party that was on their side. And I think that's a lot of the appeal of Trump, you know, sort of fast forwarding is whatever else you might say about the guy, he gives a lot of voters a visceral sense he's on their side. And the Democrats are not. They look down on them. They are, in the immortal words of Hillary Clinton, deplorables. So uh, that counts for a lot. And I think Democrats have a terrible time figuring out how to negotiate that and get back on the right side of these voters and convince them their values are in sync with them. And, uh, you know, that gets back to the difficulty of the Democrats in moving to the center on a whole wide variety of issues, uh, I think, at this point. I mean, look at Whenever Biden does something that's relatively moderate, he sort of apologizes for it <laughs> and tries not to talk about it very much, you know. So what would it look like for Democrats to recapture the center ground on culture in particular? And how can people like you and me, I suppose, who argue for that, respond to the objection that often is then made, which is, well, you are wanting to sacrifice social justice or wanting to sacrifice the right principles, uh, sacrifice the interests of vulnerable minority groups in order to play electoral politics. Both what are the ways in which a democratic coalition would have to change in order to not be toxic in this way among working class voters? And how can we make a case for this which demonstrates that this is driven by a set of principles considerations rather than merely being a kind of foul electoral compromise that is going to have a hard time passing muster with the stakeholders in the Democratic Party? Well, I mean, I, I would never underestimate the desirability of electoral compromise. I mean, we do live in the real world here, but obviously you don't want to throw your principles out the window at the same time. And you don't want to, as they say, throw anybody under the bus in a, in a practical, concrete sense. The question is, what would actually constitute doing that? What are the principles of the Democratic Party? Are the principles of the Democratic Party and race, that uh, different races should be favored over others, that we should have reparations, that we should, you know, America's a white supremacist society, that, you know, America is shot through with racism, it was born in slavery, marinated in racism, and is a united society this day. Is that a principle of the Democratic Party, or is that a belief of a certain sector of the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left? that is now sort of difficult to argue against within the Democratic Party, but doesn't even reflect where most voters are coming from. It doesn't even reflect where a lot of non-white voters are coming from. So what is the point of this? If it's alienating to voters and it's not, you know, what most voters believe, including non-white voters, when we have a situation where white college graduates are more liberal on racial issues and are more sort of aggressive on their views of how racist American society is, then like, you know, non-white voters. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? So what's the point of that? It doesn't really help. And if you're throwing anybody under the bus by, you know, sticking with the racism example, by insisting on seeing everything in racial terms, the result of this is it's divisive. It divides your coalition and undermines your political support. If you want to help the people who are poorest in this society, who are suffering the most, black, white, brown, whatever, you actually have to have universal programs that uplift people that are acceptable to the broadest possible sector of voters. And that's what's really going to help them. What does it help like a poor black person in Milwaukee if, you know, you're talking all the time about, 
you know, white supremacy in America, and you have all these elaborate diversity programs within professional hierarchies. I'll tell you who it benefits. <laughs> you know, college-educated black professionals, for example, who have a, they drive a labor market advantage from that. But what is? How does that help most people? It doesn't. So you're not throwing anybody under the bus by having a more centrist position. You're simply trying to do the greatest good for the greatest number, which should be the goal of a left-wing party. It seems to. To me, so a lot of these boutique positions Democrats have embraced on things like race and on immigration, on crime. What's wrong with tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime? It's a great slogan. People hate crime. You know, they just, they loathe it. It makes their it tears apart their communities. That's what they really care about: public safety. But Democrats seemingly reluctant to talk about public safety and putting criminals in jail because that's like would have disparate impact. Well, people don't care about disparate impact. Activists care about disparate impact. But normal voters, normie voters care about, even, including in non-white communities, is getting criminals off the street and making their where they live safe. That's what they care about. Anyway, end of rant. But I just think it's preposterous that this, this involves you know, throwing anybody under the bus other than perhaps a few activists who are supported by foundation grants. What would you say to a senator or congressman who comes to you and says, I buy your argument. I've read your book. I've listened to your podcast. You know, you're right. But I do this and some of my funders are going to freak out. I do this and my junior staff quits. I do this and I have a primary challenge against me. Is it possible for democratic electeds to actually pull off this strategy? Oh, I think it's possible. I do think it would take a certain amount of courage to try it. I mean, there's the activist groups and other pressures that are brought to bear in these politicians will assure and make known to any politician who's believed to be contemplating a move toward the center on this step. If you do this, we will attack you. We will pillory on social media. We might even try to primary you. And a politician just has to make the judgment. You know, maybe this is easier if you're not in a plus 25 super liberal congressional district, but like AOC is, but that I, I can get by by appealing to the sort of the, the, the center of where voters are in my district, which is typically significantly more moderate than the activists say it is. In a way, I think, um, you know, the primary thing is a problem. But one general way I think about the progressive left at this point is they're like paper tigers. They don't control that many voters because they're not that many voters who actually agree with them. What they do have is big megaphones. What they do have is an aggressive public relations strategy. What they do have is an echo chamber in certain parts of the media. But in terms of what actual voters will respond to, it's not at all clear they control that many voters. There aren't that many super liberal college graduate voters in this country, though they, there are bigger concentrations of them in certain districts. And, you know, you just have to decide this is what I want. And this, this requires somewhat, I think, a sea change in the Democratic Party among more politicians. I mean, to some extent, it's a first mover problem. You've got to have people, you know, someone's got to get out there and do it, which will then be followed by someone else who does it and someone else. And it's this, the same thing with uh, trying to push back against some of the dumb stuff that Democrats and, and progressives currently believe. You've got to have people willing to go out there and say what they really think instead of falsifying their preferences to accord with whatever appears to be the consensus in the area that they live. Enough people do that and you get a preference cascade where you know, people come out of the woodwork and say, you know, I always thought this was complete baloney <laughs> and now I'm going to say it. So a uh, long-winded answer, but I do think that it's possible for them to escape the vortex of 
contemporary democratic progressivism if you want to move to the center. But it won't be easy. But hey, that's why they pay in the big bucks, you know. I'm just a pointy-headed intellectual uh, saying what I think would work over the medium to long term. Let's delve into your history as a pointy-headed intellectual. Um, your last very influential book before this one was called, I believe, The Emerging Democratic Majority. And it ended up being incredibly influential, arguing that at a moment when Democrats were very depressed about their electoral prospects in the depths of the George W. Bush years, actually all kinds of demographic trends, as well as economic and urbanistic trends, were going to benefit the Democrats in the years to come. And they would be able to build this majority that would be based on urban professionals and, you know, there's different kinds of things you talked about, but also in particular on the fact that the electorate was trending significantly non-white and that uh, non-white voters were much more likely to build for the, to vote for the Democratic Party. This became sort of accepted in a much more simplistic way than you originally proposed it, but perhaps we can argue about just how much falsification of the original theory was involved, as this idea that whatever Democrats do, they only have to mobilize the true base, which was increasingly thought of as being uh, black and brown people, and black and brown people were thought of as being incredibly progressive. And so you didn't have to make any trade-offs. You just had to move to the left and spend some money on mobilizing people, and boom, we would win every election. And this is how Democrats thought they couldn't possibly lose against Donald Trump. This is how I think a lot of the last 10 or 15 years of American politics can be explained. Now, one of the striking trends in the last five or 10 years is that, at least in its simplistic version, this theory seems to have misguided us very significantly. Donald Trump in 2020 was competitive in the election because he significantly increased the share of the vote among non-white voters. And Joe Biden ended up being elected because he significantly increased the share among white voters relative to 2016. But tell us about where we are at with that trend and how far it's going to go. Because I do still see a bit of genuine debate among people who analyze polls and so on between those who say, look, there was a high watermark of ethnic polarization that thankfully has subsided. And nowadays, voting margins are a little bit less pronounced among Latinos and even among African-Americans. But they're still there. African-Americans, on most of them still definitely vote for the Democratic Party. And even among Latinos, there's still an advantage for the Democratic Party. And perhaps it's not quite as extreme as it was in 2012 or 2016, but it really is still there. And you know what? In the end, we can still count on the diversification of the United States to help the Democratic Party in the midterm. And then there's a reading of this that says, no, Democrats are really in a profound way in the process of losing the working class. And the first signs of that was their deep unpopularity among the white working class. But something similar is now happening, happening among working class Latinos and perhaps even among working class African-Americans. Where do you sit yourself, situate yourself within that debate and why? Yeah, definitely probably the latter view. Yeah, going back to the emerging Democratic majority, the sort of ba totally boundlerized interpretation of it was demographics are destiny. These are changes that no one can stop. It's like trying to stop the tide. And because the tide will roll in and we're on the right side, we're, we're, we're sort of riding that wave, everything's going to be great in the future. And I actually wrote, a, I thought, a good piece about that for your website for your Substack persuasion. And we talk about it also in the first part of our book. 
that the worst thing about having a thesis that gets popular is in the end, people will understand almost nothing of it except for like one sentence. In our book, we, we were very careful back in 2002 to say, look, these these changes are taking place. They are They are real. And if Democrats can manage these changes well with what we call the kind of progressive centrism, they could maybe uh, ride this the, these changes to a dominant position for a while. And I said, we had an election. We had a very important caveat, I mean, an actual section of the book where we talk about the white working class. Look, guys, okay, the white working class, yes, they're, defi- they're a declining demographic, but they're still huge. And they will be very big for a long time, and particularly big in a lot of key states in the Midwest. Therefore, if Democrats continue bleeding support among these voters, the whole political arithmetic we're, we're laying out might not work out that well. But that was quickly disregarded. In 2008, Obama uh, wins the election where the coalition looks very much like what we argued, sort of outlining in the book. But people ignore the fact he actually did relatively well among white working class voters. He really grabbed some of these voters back. But in 2010, you know, it turns out that that coalition wasn't particularly stable at all. And we don't have to get into all the reasons why 2010 happened the way it did. But what drove the sort of catastrophic outcome for the Democrats was bailing out of white working class voters in a lot of sections of the country, including in the Midwest. So that should have been a bit of a danger sign. 2012, Obama comes back and manages to win a second term by running a somewhat populist campaign, uh, the auto bailout and all that against Romney. And again, what people didn't realize about that election, and it sort of got summarized by both Democrats and Republicans as this rising American majority was powered Obama to a second term. There's some truth to that, but in reality, he wins that election because he manages to to sort of claw back a lot of these voters in the upper Midwest. Without that, he does not win this election. Big, big, important event that was you know, ignored. And then 2014, another terrible election of the Democrats who lose nine Senate seats. And then we get Hillary Clinton coming into the 2016 election. And clearly, she and the Democrats have learned nothing. Because she basically runs that campaign against the, the bad orange man. Donald Trump is like, you know, we're the good America, the rising America. Trump's a bad man. You know, we're stronger together. And all of our commercials were about the horrible things that Donald Trump said. And almost none of it about anything related to policy. Whereas if you looked at what Trump ran on, it was like trade, immigration, you know, the elites who don't care about you, runaway shops. I mean, he it may not have been the, the best or the most specific policy stuff, but it was about like people's lives and how they're being affected by change and what policy should do about it. And of course, he had kind of magical solutions for all these things, but he was speaking to what people really cared about in a lot of areas of the country. It's one of the ways, as a brief interjection, in which I think Trump's campaign this year is going to be rather less effective than in 2016. In 2016, he had a very negative vision of where America was, but he had a positive vision of where he wanted to take the country, not a vision that spoke to me personally, not a vision that I thought realistic. But he said, we're going to deal with a border problem. We're going to put a lot of money in industry. You know, We're going to fix your health care. He was making big promises that where if you believed them, people had good reasons to connect to. They said, hey, I'm going to have healthcare. Hey, uh, you know, our industry is going to come back. This year, it feels like his campaign is much more bitter, much more personal, much more based on the injustices done to him 
rather than the things that he can do for the country. And and and, and I wonder whether outside of a very fervent supporter base, uh, that is one of his vulnerabilities. But that's just as an interjection. I wanted to continue on with a broader story. I think that's fair. I mean, I think um, his standard rap from 2016, actually, I think it would still actually play pretty well, but I do think it's being overwhelmed by his, as you say, bitterness and relitigating the 2020 election. If I was running the zoo over in Trump land, I would... You know, you can't get Trump to do anything, but I do think this this hurts, not helps him. But it's also worth observing that it, you know, not get too into the twenty twenty four weeds. Trump is running much better now than he ran in twenty sixteen at this point in the campaign, so that's a little scary, right? Anyway, yeah. So, uh, but you know, the 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 Clinton election really does represent a bit of a cut point for the Democrats in coming to terms with these issues, which is to say, they don't come to terms with them. Hillary Clinton, as I mentioned before, Trump supporters are deplorables. The center of gravity of analysis after the election and left of center circles, if these people are all racist and xenophobes, there's no other possible reason why anyone would vote for Donald Trump. And there was a real lack of engagement with the idea that there might have been some legitimate grievances or problems behind what motivated these voters. Maybe, you know, the way we're doing things isn't the best. Maybe we need to figure out a way to, to make these voters more comfortable with the Democratic Party. And then you have 2018, where the dissatisfaction with Trump produces a democratic wave, but a democratic wave based mostly on the fact people were sick of Trump. It wasn't a particularly radical in any way. And the data are very clear on this. But, you know, what gets lionized in the media circles is the squad. You know, people get elected from plus 25 democratic districts by primarying a liberal incumbent or someone retires. So that's pretty crazy. And then you get to 2020. And you have all the hoofra with the Democratic primary and everybody trying to outleft each other in terms of running for the nomination. And lo and behold, who gets the nomination? Joe Biden, because it turns out that people actually, even in the Democratic Party, aren't that interested in being particularly radical on a variety of issues. And, uh, you know, that's where we are today. Uh, Biden's, yeah, you know, you can assess his presidency in, in whatever way you want in terms of its actual legislative and policy output. But at this point, at least, Democrats do not seem to have made the sale to the kinds of voters they need to make the sale to, to have, you know, better than even shot at, at, at getting this election. One thing that's continued to this day and was very clear in the 2020 election and gets to, you know, the overall question you were asking about non-white working class voters. It's just, it's just true. <laughs> they lost a lot of support among that. They're probably like, like 20 margin points among not Hispanic working class voters in 2020. And as far as we can tell from the data, it's getting worse. I mean, the Democrats are, are not performing better, but rather worse among Hispanic working class voters. So you see this among, you see that unusually high Trump support among black voters, particularly black working class voters. You see the Democrats margins among young voters being compressed. So that whole coalition that Democrats believe held the demographic key to the future is, you know, it's not necessarily falling apart, but it's clearly very shaky. And despite the fact they're running against Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is probably not even doing the best job of running his own campaign, the Republican Party seems dysfunctional, it's full of crazy people. What the hell is going on? The Democrats, there's been a variety of different responses to it. I mean, there's some technical responses. Oh, they're not polling the right people. Everyone will come home. These are people casting, in a sense, protest votes through how they respond to the polls. There's sample bias. There's measurement error. 
And it's a little bit whistling past the graveyard. I mean, the simplest hypothesis here is your support at this point doesn't look too good. And you're not doing well enough in the groups you need to do uh, well enough uh, to to be sure you're going to win. You know, we don't, you know, our book is not, you know, John and I always stress this. It's not a campaign book. We're not campaign consults. We can't tell the Democrats and we're not trying to tell the Democrats exactly how to do things, particularly as the cycle advances. We're just trying to understand and outline the ways in which we are at this kind of contretemps and in a medium to long-term sense where the Democrats or any party might want to go to be in the center of American politics. Pedro, I had a last question for you and I'm going to ask it anyway, and I'm going to put you in the, in the position of a campaign consultant because it strikes me that you know, some people uh, respect and appreciate uh, what Biden has done in office. Some people have a more critical view of his performance in office. But, you know, everybody, I think, has some sense of uneasiness about the fact that the Democratic Party is going to be represented by a candidate who is visibly not the youngest man in the world. Yeah, a zillion years old. That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Now, that boat seems to have sailed, right? At this point, Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic Party nominee. And if he weren't to be the nominee because of some uh, very severe and sudden health issue, then it likely would be Kamala Harris, who is doing significantly worse in the polls. So it looks like it's going to be Biden. But even in terms of how Biden might run the campaign, it feels as though there's no real debate about what he might do. There's just a sense of he's going to say that Bidenomics was great, even though a lot of voters, rightly or wrongly, don't buy that. You know, he's going to be his broadly moderate self, but without distancing himself in any meaningful way from the unpopular parts of the left. And then we're going to roll the dice and hope that somehow that's enough to beat a candidate like Trump, who is very, very dangerous, but has weaknesses of his own. And perhaps that'll work out. That doesn't sound like a great strategy to me. That sounds like a pretty damn scary and risky strategy for how we're going into 2024. So if there's somebody listening to this in the White House or somewhere else, what should they do? I mean, is there anything that Biden can still do at this point to address the weaknesses in the image of a Democratic Party and try in particular to make an appeal for some of those working class Democrats who have disappeared? Right. Well, of course, that's a very big question. I mean, one thing I think you left out of what you were saying about their strategy, Yasha is uh, they're actually not talking a lot about Bidenomics anymore. What they're primarily talking about is abortion rights and especially democracy. Trump is a semi-fascist. If he's elected, you know, the rule of law will disappear. Democracy will die. So I think that's hugely what they're going to run on. And I think the evidence is pretty clear that this is catnip for moderate to liberal college-educated voters, but it isn't that big an issue for working-class voters. They don't like Trump, but they actually have more confidence in the stability. Many of them don't like Trump, but they have more confidence in the stability of democracy. They're not as animated by it. There was just a CBS poll that asked people for their, you know, what they thought the most important issue in this uh, this year in this campaign was, and it was like 30% of white college-educated voters said democracy. And among voters as a whole, it was like 10% among working class voters, it was maybe a little bit less than that. So these are big differences. So they're really running, abortion rights and democracy really are in the wheelhouse of those kinds of voters upon whom they've been relying and upon whom they have the best trend lines. But they're not talking a lot about Bidenomics because the whole thing was a failure. I don't think 
Biden has mentioned Bidenomics for, for a month or two. But there are things they could talk about in terms of the economy, which would actually connect to the way people actually have experienced Bidenomics or the Biden administration, which is about prices. It's all about the cost of living. It's all about the cost of different goods that people consume. You know, there are things that Democrats could say about what they've done on prescription drugs, you know, the junk fees. I mean, whatever, just throw anything against the wall to see what it sticks in terms of giving people the impression you are focused on prices. You're not just going to talk about Bidenomics. So you understand the pain people feel. Things aren't great. We get it. And we're trying to do something about it. So there's been some good stuff the Blueprint folks have put, put out about this. But I do think it would be incumbent upon them not to just punt on all these culturally inflected issues, but try to do something that sends a different message about what Democrats stand for. And I think the most obvious thing at this point is immigration. This is a huge problem. It's now coming second behind you know, inflation in the economy as, as an issue that voters are most concerned about and are going to vote on the basis of. And to do that, you have to face down the shadow party in the Democrats that is going to cry bloody murder if you try to actually strike a deal with the Republicans in border security. Maybe they'll finally get there. There's some indications they might. But even if they do, I'm worried that, A, it'll be, you know, maybe it'll be pretty anodyne, hopefully not. But the main thing is they probably won't even talk about it. That's what happens whenever Biden does something that's sort of moderate. He's, he's kind of apologizes for it. We had to get this money for Ukraine and Israel, so I had to do this terrible thing. Don't. It's not a terrible thing. The border does need to be tightened. The asylum system is broken. You know, this parole thing is baloney, but I mean, I don't know what they'll finally wind up with as, as a solution if they do wind up with one, but use that as a lever to talk about, you think the American borders need to be secure. Illegal immigrants are in fact illegal, and we want to put the stop to that. And we're going to move toward an overhaul of the immigration system that, you know, sort of changes, sort of has definite, clear pathways for how people can come in legally. And we're going to work on that. And that that's that's part of what we're about. But we are going to secure the border. I mean, Yasha, I mean, it's amazing the extent to which so many Democratic politicians don't even want to mention the word border security because they're, you know, they're, oh, that's kind of xenophobic. And there are people in the Democratic Party, the moment you do anything along these lines, they scream bloody murder. We're already seeing that. So that's that's a bit of advice there. I mean, take one of these issues that's culturally inflected that Trump is going to run on and will actually be somewhat successful working class voters and try to turn it around and talk about what people care about in terms of the cost of living. So such is my advice. We'll, we'll see how it works. I mean, I, I think the Democratic Party realistically is not going to really changes approach in a big way until, if it does, until after 2024, because we're now in campaign cycle madness. But even within that limited context, I do think there are things, some things they can do. Rutik Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.